So this morning, I want you to try and think uh, like the leaders and the crowds. <laughs> this is so messed up. I'm going back on vacation. All right. All right. <laughs> so I'm not starting over. Let's <laughs> start over. <laughs> Did you guys hear any of that? Okay, good. I see thumbs on the top. So hopefully, hopefully that worked out well. <clears throat> So this morning, here's the segue. Hopefully this works out. This morning, I want you to try and think uh, like, like the leaders and the crowds that, that are hearing Jesus teach about himself for the first time. Okay? Think about this. Uh, we have heard of Jesus. Even if you're in this room and you have not believed in him or you have, you're at a certain place with, his, with faith with him, in this, in this world right here, some of these people are hearing about the, the person of Jesus for the first time. And I want us to think like this this morning. Try to forget what you know about him and think about what it would be like to hear about Jesus as Lord for the first time. The real, the real need for this is that there are people in our lives um, who might have heard the name of Jesus in the 21st century world, but they are going to hear Jesus like this. They're going to hear him as Lord and not really have a, a, a benevolent or affectionate understanding of that. So by understanding the tone of what Jesus is dealing with here, it gives us the ability to wrestle with this in our own lives, but also to wrestle with this as we try to help other people understand the importance of this. And in this passage, uh, a lot of biblical scholars will talk about the early chapters of John. They'll say that this is what they call the problem of Jesus. And so for those of you that love Jesus, it's going to be very hard, I think, for us to understand Jesus being a problem because we've come to the place in life where we are trying to, with all of our hearts, believe that he is the solution, right? But here, the problem of Jesus is growing. And here's why. In this, in this kind of, uh, in, in this festival, much like the reaction to verse 9 in Philippians, there are people who have a real problem with this boldness that Jesus is beginning to proclaim. They're okay with him feeding them. They're okay with him loving them. They're okay with him caring for them. But when he begins to say things like, I come with the authority of my Father in heaven, who is God because I am God, their conclusions become radically different. They're okay with the Savior side of Jesus, but not necessarily the Lord side. And so what happens is, is there's some forced conclusions that happen here. The, the people here are being challenged with recognizing who Jesus is on his terms, not necessarily on their own terms. And one of the first things that comes to light here in this passage is that in the ancient world, just like the modern world, this is kind of like the same story but a different day. Uh, in the ancient world, just like the modern world, there are very diverse opinions, understandings, and beliefs about who Jesus is. And although we read a short excerpt from John 7, I want to read uh, John 7, 12 through 13, and then verses 20 and 41. Because what we're going to read here are, Jesus is saying, I'm God, I'm Lord. And these are the four responses that this crowd of people, many for the first time, are hearing from Jesus. Here's how they respond to him. Among the crowds, John tells us, there was widespread whispering about him. This is what I mean about diverse opinions. Whispering meaning people heard this and they were looking to each other saying like, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense to me. Some said, yeah, listen, Jesus is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. He's a liar. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. In verse 20, a little later on down the passage, we learn that uh, some said Jesus was demon-possessed, and others said that he was actually the Messiah. Four pretty concrete conclusions about who Jesus is, all in response to his authority claims, which will be further you know, unpacked as we read the rest of the New Testament. 
So when, when Paul says Jesus is Lord and one day everybody will affirm that, this is the rumblings of Jesus beginning to show that he's not just Savior, but he's also the Son of God. And that is a high and mighty title, a title that, it, that his Lordship was used to serve all of humanity. And these conclusions are still held today. We're not going to unpack them in, in great detail, but I just want you to hear them because it is just about guaranteed that in our own lives, when we have an objection following Jesus, or when we're talking to somebody who has an objection with following Jesus, they are going to fall in one of these categories. They're going to have one of these ideas that keeps them from knowing God, like Jesus says we should be able to know God. We will not know the love or the will of God our Father if we cannot at least with a good heart and a, and a, a proper intention wrestle with these things. So conclusion number one, and perhaps the most clear, the most popular, is that Jesus is just a good man. And if any of you have done any reading, uh, reading in modern apologetics, you know that this is probably the most common way that people try to deal with Jesus's authority. They, they try to deal with his claims by saying, Jesus is a good guy. I love him. He's spiritual. Uh, I really, I even heard, was watching an old clip from David Letterman a couple of weeks ago, where he said, I'm not a religious man, but I'm spiritual, right? So this is the idea where, where people begin to take like a form of who Jesus is or an idea or a concept or something they like about him, but they take it in very selective pieces. And the way they're able to do this is they'll, they'll be able to say, well, Jesus loved poor people. And he did. And so should we. But that's great. I'm going to follow Jesus in that area. I'm just not going to follow him in any other areas. What, what, this, what this idea does is it, is it makes it very easy for us to affirm a part of Jesus, but not the whole of Jesus. And it's convenient because it, to one degree, it's somewhat educated. And here's what I mean by that. You will not find a, a scholar or person that has read anything. Um, even, even the average person on the street that maybe has never read anything to do with religion of any form. Nobody denies that Jesus was a real person. It's impossible to do that. There's too much broad spread uh, traction for the fact that he was real, that he walked the earth. Too much evidence that affirms that. And in, even in the modern debates, you kind of look a little foolish denying that. So that's not where the point of denial comes around. To remedy this, people divide Jesus into these two categories. They recognize, yes, he was here, but he just was not who he said he was. He was not Lord. He was not God. And this is the, probably the most common way people respond to Jesus' lordship claims today. And they do it for good reason. Because it is the pinnacle of, I think, what our society calls for today. It provides a convenient type of religion or relationship with Jesus. When you believe this way about Jesus, you can rather conveniently pick what you like about him, choose what you like about him, and then throw away what you do not like about him. And that is why, for, for those of you who might have active relationships with people who are very far from God, we encourage that here, you might talk to people who, who say they love Jesus, but they might have developed a very radically different understanding of Jesus than the one you have if you are kind of in his word and pursuing him that way, which is something we'll talk about next week. Now, one of the best examples, and I've mentioned this before in, in the context of authority, um, is uh, of this happening, I think the pointy end of the spear, is in looking at some of the origins of the, the founding father nature of our, of our country. Okay? You can see this happening a lot in some of the figureheads, the stateheads that we see in American history. And the best example of this is through this little book that I've referenced before called the Jefferson Bible, which was named after one of America's founding fathers. You know who that founding father is? Okay, so two of you know that the Jefferson Bible comes from Thomas Jefferson. That's excellent. Um, uh, he is a pretty profound figure in American history, right? And Jefferson is, uh, you know, influential in everything that, that is America today. He is one of the, the shaping hands of the country. So Jefferson believes, this is his belief system, he believes that Jesus is essential to the stability of society. 
And so what he does is he, he believes in this book. What he does is he takes Jesus's morals, you know, don't rob, don't steal, take care of your family. These are all things that are beneficial for a society to flourish. He takes all of these ideas when he writes this book. It's a, it's a contribution to the stabilization of what is a newly formed society or forming society, this kind of embryonic republic of the United States. And he feels like the, the morality of Jesus is very important to have in, the, in, the, in this culture. And so what he does is it's so important that he, he publishes this book called the Jefferson Bible, or as it's formerly known, the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's interesting because in a general conversation, I don't think anybody would say, hey, hey, here's a book on the life and the morals of Jesus. This is probably really a great thing to read. And I'm sure that it is because it highlights his behavior, if you will. But what's interesting is they, they call it the Jefferson Bible because he also, by portraying this very dogmatic side of Jesus, he completely edited all of the sides of Jesus where he talked about himself being Lord. He removed his miracles. He cut out his divinity. And there's nothing in there about Jesus being the savior of the world. So what you have here is a perfect example. And this happens in life every single day. People don't write their own books, but they, they have their own mini paragraphs in the way they see Jesus. It's a perfect example of someone taking something really great about Jesus, his goodness, right? But rejecting the authority that comes with his goodness. You don't just get the goodness. You also have to understand Jesus's lordship. In fact, in this case, something very interesting happens. If you look at the nature of the Bible, or if you look at the nature of just kind of the editing that takes place here, uh, what happens is, is Jefferson actually becomes the authority over Jesus. Because in this book, Jesus doesn't have the final say in his life about who he is. In this book, Thomas Jefferson has the final say about who Jesus is. He gets to cast Jesus in his own image. And it is, I think, historically speaking, one of the most profound understandings, misunderstandings of Jesus. You get this, this book on Amazon for like eight bucks. It's probably worth having if you, this is a subject that you're interested in, in, in looking at. Because what is going to happen is Paul and Jesus are going to say that we don't really have the right, we don't really have the right to do that. So listen to this. Here's what is, I think, the most famous uh, quote or description that describes this problem. And it's penned by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. And many people out of this, like you 2 wrote a bit of music about this. Uh, Bono, this kind of quote hit the world a couple of years ago or a few years ago where he took this and kind of paraphrased it into a modern tongue. But any, any type of ideas or reasoning about why this is problematic likely finds its root in what C.S. Lewis says. And this is worth listening to because he's going to address the issue of Jesus being like a good guy but not actually being the Lord, which is a problem for those that really want to love God well. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Here's where the, there's a conflict in saying he's a good man or a good teacher, but not necessarily God. Because he's going to either be, according to Lewis, a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. He's a, he's a great teacher, but a crazy one, essentially is what he's saying. Or he would be the devil of hell, which is an accusation that is leveled against Jesus here momentarily when they say that he's lying. I'll get to that in a second. And so what he says here is you've got to, you've got to make a choice. You cannot really, you can hold to this position, but what it does is it creates a very polluted understanding of Jesus on both sides of the fence. Either this man was and is the son of God, like he claims to be, or else he was a madman or something worse, uh, like a crazy person trying to manipulate or take advantage of people. But let us not come, he says, with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. And I think the key to this, and this goes to show you the root of the lordship issue, is that Jesus has not left that open to us, and he never intended to. So ultimately, when we begin to talk about lordship, what has to happen is we, we, have to, we have to take Jesus' lordship on his terms. 
And Lewis is saying, well, it's convenient and popular to say that Jesus is just a good person while denying that he's our God. You can't do that. Because if you really want to know who Jesus is, the most qualified person to explain that is who? It's Jesus, right? It's not our impressions or in person, uh, our understandings of him, especially if they're disconnected from who he says he is. And so this, while it is probably the most common response in our culture today, it's probably the most compromised, and it creates a bit of a cop-out because it actually just allows you to not deal with anything. And so if you really are looking to know Jesus, this is probably not the best way to, to pursue him. You'll just end up creating him in your image. So we cannot say he's just a good man or a great teacher. Second thing that happens here is that he begins to talk about lordship again. He, this is going. This is going through this. Th- this conversation is about lordship, and the second accusation is that he's he's just being distruthful about this. He's lying, and so this is uh, a much nastier accusation than we might think it would be without understanding the Old Testament history behind it. Beginning in the book of Deuteronomy, and this is kind of why Lewis talks about him being the devil of hell in the first century world. Uh, there were a lot of people claiming to be. God. This was actually a pretty serious problem. And you have a lot of Old Testament teaching. This kind of gives you a little bit of the the reasoning behind why there is an objection uh, to to people people saying, like, listen, there are going to be people that come and say they're God, and they're going to be false. So you need to be aware of this. So there is, I think, much like in our culture today, a natural skepticism, and I would even say a bit of a healthy skepticism in in really figuring out if this guy says he's our Lord, trying to really figure out if that's true or not. Because I would not recommend seating your life over to the lordship of anybody unless there is a confidence in there being a truth or a veracity in the statement, like Jesus says here. So what's happening here is there were plenty of people who said things like this and pulled people away from God. And so there was a strong penalty associated with this. You, you might actually see the ultimate climax of this, the, the fulfillment of this. The, the penalty for being a false prophet in the Old Testament world was death. And ultimately, this is one of the primary reasons Jesus gets put on the cross, because the, the predominant conclusion of a great many of the leaders in that day was that he was a false prophet. And so the rumblings of this accusation here actually end up in the reality of him being killed. And so you have a lot of religious leaders who I think, maybe even with good motives, um, they misunderstood who Jesus was. And I have mentioned this before, so I won't really go through uh, a lot of depth here, but I think the challenge with calling Jesus a liar is, again, it contradicts with this popular idea that is in our culture that he's a good man. But if he's a good man and a liar, how could he be a good man? The challenge here is that um, I think he really would have had to be crazy to to lie about this. There there really is no earthly benefit for him to make this stuff up. It, it guarantees a death. And so while lying, I guess, in their minds could have been a possibility, I don't know that it actually is a real possibility if you think about the logic of what the cost of those statements meant if they were actually not not true. So it ends up having his life taken from him. So what what is the point of doing it? And I think that that is a question. If you ever meet somebody who thinks that Jesus was just flat out dishonest, um, it at least begs the question of why somebody would be so dishonest when there was such little to gain. (laughs) Actually, there was nothing to gain. His distruthfulness or untruthfulness did did not merit any kind of a benefit for his life. The third conclusion we see here in verse 20 is this idea of demon possession, all right? So in the ancient world, uh, this is a way of calling somebody insane, uh, and this is something that you don't really hear a lot today. Uh, I think you might hear people, they'll have problems with Jesus, and we're going to get to the root of what this actually means here in a moment. All these statements really are evidences of authority. This is the kind of case I want to make for you this morning, a, a, a challenge with his authority. But here you have some people that they don't just think he's lying, they think he's like a lunatic, 
This is, again, something that uh, that Lewis addresses in his quote. And so what happens here is they say, listen, this guy's just deceived himself into believing that he's Lord. And this is a camp, a very common one today. And again, there is some truth in this. This is a camp that says, listen, people who think like this are pretty dangerous. If you start to look at folks who had God-type complexes throughout history, you can see them in the religious and even in the political world, the Jim Joneses of the world, people like Saddam Hussein, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, these people who embrace these these personas, um, they always end in some kind of a pleasure in hurting people. And so I am saying here that there is a necessary sense of wisdom that should be applied when we begin to talk about people who make these claims. It should be applied to what they say. Because in these cases, we do see on very great levels and then sometimes in smaller levels that there are people who are power hungry, disturbed and, and dangerous, and they will use that to take advantage of you. So while it's true that history has no shortage of these types of people uh, who manipulate power to gain power, uh, we, we have to be careful here because, again, when you look at the story of Jesus, especially now as, um, you know, we're not there yet, but we're kind of like at the precipice of the fall holiday season, right? This is not too far away. All of the narrative of who Jesus is is that he is regularly laying down his power and even his authority is being used to bring about the benefit to other people. The fact that he is God is used so that he can bring grace to the world. That is an authority used in benefiting you and I. It's, it's an authority that is, is marked by giving up power for the benefit of other people, in, the, in this case, ending with his death. So to think kind of logically and reasonably here, if people just say, well, he's kind of crazy, the problem is that the actions don't really line up. And they, they especially become like a mix of misconstrued beliefs in somebody's, in somebody's mind. You have him as a good man, but a liar. You have him as a good man, but kind of a little crazy. He's good enough to kind of speak into my life in this way, but not in another. That does not really make a lot of sense when you put it all on paper and read it in a short-form story. So there's one last conclusion that, that comes out of this, this kind of dialogue. Some think he's crazy. Some think he's a good man. Some think he's a liar. But there are some in verse 41 that say, uh, this guy's the Christ. And what they mean by that is he is who he says he is. There is an affirmation that, granted, it's a kind of a, a very young one, but there's an affirmation that says, okay, I actually think this guy is who he says he is. He's God. Now, I'm going to be a little biased here, but I, I think this is the right conclusion. It's the most consistent conclusion. And here's why. Um, in the modern world, you know, when people talk about Jesus, this is kind of a battle cry of our day. They often want to highlight all of the unbelief and rejection that he has received. It's becoming increasingly common uh, today to, to kind of ring the Christianity as dying alarm. We see a lot of these statistics going all over the map, and they are definitely worth reading and understanding. But I guess I want to say this, that while uh, rejection and unbelief is very real and it still persists today, we only tell part of the story if we fail to realize that everywhere Jesus goes, while there is certainly rejection, there are also people who believe in him and trust in him and wrestle with his claims. And there are many people who also follow him as their Lord. There is in this group always a group of people who say, I think that's the Messiah. And they start to reorient their lives around him. They begin to embrace and understand what it means to, to see him not just as the Savior, but as the Lord of life. And the greatest example of this is that none of us would be here if this were not true. You know, we, we should always point this out, that while there is always rejection of the name of Jesus, and that oftentimes vicariously means rejection of us when we speak of our Jesus to people, Scripture, history, and this room, just like the many others around the country and the world that will worship him in, in, a, in a gathering like this and then in their lives as they leave this place, they all show us that there are people who trust God and who begin to recognize that, that there is some validity to what Jesus says about himself. And so when it, when it comes to authority, 
here's what I want to say here. We see some very radical different opinions. They all have different like touch points, lying, crazy, good, but, uh, but not God, and, and maybe even God. Some people are saying here he's God. These all seem, especially the objections, they seem like different objections, but I, I want to say pretty dogmatically that these three conclusions, and I would say predominantly today, the majority of objection towards Jesus is rooted in a subliminal rejection of his authority. This is what it comes down to. 30 years ago, people were saying like, well, it's the Bible that is the problem. We'll talk about that. I can't trust the Bible, which is sort of an authority issue in general. But I can tell you in counseling and in conversation, the majority of what the root of rejection is for most people, most people today is they say, I think Jesus was a great guy. But if I actually think enough to count the cost of what it means to follow him, then I recognize he's going to call me to be something very different than I am right now for the rest of my days. And the thought of that is paralytic for a lot of people. So it comes down to a fear issue, comes down to a control issue, comes down to a lordship issue. And while the first three conclusions might seem radically different, at the root of them all is the same underlying objection. There is a a denial of Jesus being the Lord. So people were ultimately denying Jesus because they didn't want to submit to him. This is why Jesus says this. I mean, if you're wondering how I'm putting this together, let's just listen. And this is why we've kind of connected John 7 to this authority statement in Philippians. And Jesus' infinite wisdom in the middle of these objections. You get two objections. Jesus says what I'm about to read. And then you get two more conclusions about who he is. Jesus answers a question they're not even really asking. He says, listen, my teaching, my, my revelation of who I am, it is not my own. It comes, here's the authorities there, it comes from the one who sent me. And anyone who chooses to do the will of God, they're going to find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. What he's saying is, listen, if you truly want to know the Father, then you you have got to at least get to the place in your life where you can recognize that I'm not saying these things as a liar or a lunatic or a good man. I don't speak these words on my own. I speak them with the authority of my Father in heaven who sent me. And he's beginning to slowly but surely reveal his lordship. With increasing emphasis, he will say this over the life of his ministry. It will ultimately end in his death. And then after his death, we see these, these proclamations like what Paul is saying, where he's saying, listen, at some point, everybody's going to recognize. Maybe it'll be too late in some senses, but they're going to recognize because God is going to say, listen, you cannot take my son's love and just throw this to the curb. He's got to hear from your mouth that he matters and that what he did was real and genuine. With increasing emphasis, he, he teaches this and shows this. And so this is an interesting thing to talk about as we, as we look at what it means to, to be loved by Jesus well and to love others well. This, the kind of crowning jewel of, of maturation in Christianity is growing in our desire to make Jesus the Lord of all areas of our lives. And I will tell you that the statement that God loves most out of the four we have looked at this morning is the one we read about in verse 41. Because it's the only statement where people are no longer using excuses to deny who Jesus is in their lives. They start to embrace the truth that, that he's the Messiah. And what happens, unlike the, fir- the first three groups, is that that fourth group in 41 that recognizes Jesus, they take the crown off their own head and they hand it back to God. And they say, the crown of my life belongs on your head because I'm starting to see that you're Lord. And I want to see what this means. I want to explore this and I want to grow in this and I want to understand this. This is an ideal for the Christian faith. This is the normative way God would like us to function. However, in our body, you know that we, while we value ideal, we regularly marry it with the, with the challenge of the real. Because idealism left unchecked is just a, 
it's a bar of success that we will constantly re be reminded of that we, we never meet. We don't ever hit those metrics. So I think for the remainder of what we're going to talk about today, I want us to highlight that, that there's a significant tension between this ideal to, to see Jesus as Lord and to crown him that in growing areas of our lives. There is a real tension in our own hearts at times and in the modern world generally to, to make this happen. This, I would not say, is an easy task, but it is a task that in God's grace is very possible. And it is certainly one that should become the priority of our hearts. So why, might, why you might ask, why is this a challenge? What makes it a challenge? Well, authority in general, um, I mean, all throughout history, you'll see that there are peaks and valleys of how masses of people respond to authority. And I can tell you, I don't think that you, you really need to be kind of a sociologist to see this in our current world, but authority in very pointed ways, again, is becoming somewhat of a controversial word in, in our culture again. You can see it in just some of the heinous things going on in our communities, amongst local law enforcement, amongst the way uh, you know, people slaughtering other people because of their religious beliefs. All these become, uh, in healthy societies anyways, these are uh, their knee-jerk reactions against stabilized authorities, like you should not take somebody else's life. That is kind of a, that's an authority of our land, but yet we see it happening regularly. In Western culture, uh, and very significant, and sometimes in very, they might seem trivial, but they are ways that really signify that there is a general resistance at times, sometimes very strong resistance to the ideas of authority. And I realize we need to say this. There are times when authority is resisted because it's abusive authority. There are times when, when there are very sinful paradigms for authority that take place in our world. Believe me, this is not like a blind totalitarian statement. I don't even think, I'm confident that is not what Jesus is saying. I'm confident that is not what Paul is saying. But what we, what we should maybe refine our conversation this morning to is what happens when we look at authority that is not abusive that is actually valid. In the case of God, it is pure and it is holy and it is righteous. How is it that when we think of his love and those types of things that we can look at God and say, no, I'm going to actually reject that. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's the idea that we're talking about here. It's important that to the best of our abilities, we, we wipe that abusive image of authority from our head when we speak about uh, Jesus's authority, no matter what form we see it in, whether it is Authorities over people or peoples that are on a, on a spreadsheet below authorities, I don't know. It, it has no boundary. All I'm saying is that in general, in the last 50 years, a popular worldview um, has, has really kind of predominated the landscape of, of, of people's mental process, their thought process. It has subliminally led people to call all authority into question. And this idea is what we would call postmodernism. And I want to explain this to you. Because even if you've never heard that word before, it is very likely that you have been affected by it. Um, it seems to be a much problem, a much bigger problem than those like around the age of 35 or under it. But the bottom line is that coming out of an epoch of history in the, the 40s, and 50s, and 60s, where authority seemed to be, at least from the outside of the, the fence, more respected, as we moved into the 60s and the 70s, very clearly, um, there was a, just a rampant rejection of authority. And we still see a lot of the lingering effects of that today. And so ingrained in many people's minds is this knee-jerk resistance uh, reaction to any kind of authority. And the, the party-line belief of this goes like this. So if you take the, you know, oftentimes philosophy is rendered as being like white, white tower and, and really not relevant. White tower meaning like it's like six guys in the middle of Western Europe having this conversation, but it has no effect on, on, our, on the average person's life. What I'm telling you is that these white towers always have trickle-down effects to the world that we live in. And so here, if you've ever heard somebody say something like, well, you know what, that's true for you, but it's not true for me, that is an evidence of postmodernism. That's probably the, the biggest one we have today. And what's interesting about this is that, especially when you begin to look at like, the authority of Jesus, 
you actually have people who are all saying they love Jesus that are saying things like, well, that, that's true for you when you read Romans, but it's not really true for me when I read that. You, you see this kind of even permeating uh, what we might even call mature ranks of Christianity today. So people will say things like that. And while it can absolutely be true that it is, it can be true that what is true for you is not true for me. That is a very valid thing. It can also be entirely untrue that what is true for you is, uh, or true for me is not untrue for you. There are times when those two things do intersect. So this is common and accepted and maybe even sophisticated. In fact, in our, in our world today, like ideas like truth and authority, they're actually not as popular as, um, as ideas like maybe a lot of subjectivity or people saying like, well, there's multiple ways to do multiple things to do multiple things. I get all that and that can be true. But the bottom line is that to say like I believe in this is not as popular as saying, I, as saying things like I believe in many things or, or nothing at all. Uh, that is the zeitgeist, the spirit of the world today, where 50 years ago it was very different. The challenge with this is this. It flies in the face of the way God designed us in the world to function. Um, scripture teaches pretty clearly that authority, when it is not unhealthy, it, it is, originates from God. It is ordained by God and is necessary for stability in all walks of life. And I'm going to read a verse to you in Romans 13 that I'm sure many of you have read before. Paul says this to us. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So you have a pretty pointed verse here, not the only one, but you have a pretty pointed verse here, that when not in the context of abusiveness or sinfulness, um, what we read here is that authority actually is an evidence of the grace of God. It is something that is necessary uh, to maintain a stable society. And although we see, you know, kind of crazy versions of this today, um, we are supposed to subject ourselves to a certain degree to those authorities. If you think of authority, even in a Western democracy, we call the majority of our leaders civil servants, right? The idea of authority in our world, when it is functioning and healthy, is not authority for power. It's an authority that is given to people to serve other people civilly. Now, that happens sometimes, and it doesn't happen sometimes, right? That's why there's an objection at times. And I'll take this even a step further. If you begin to read the book of Acts, you see that this same paradigm exists. Paul tells us God has set up authority structures rooted in servanthood in the church. There are pastors and elders and deacons and leaders and some, some positions even in our church that are not even necessarily listed in Scripture. Some of you are community group leaders. Some of you oversee teams. And, and by having a sense of authority, by saying, like, I lead a team, that authority is kind of vested into certain people to be a, a, a biblical or a scriptural or a Christian servant to others. It's not an authority, an authority to wield power over people. It is an authority to show what is servant leadership. And this is, I think, where we have to have different understandings of authority when we speak of Jesus, because his authority is used to serve the benefit of others. And so any authority in the Christian world needs to have the same connection point. God appoints these things. He, he embodies them. He assigns them, especially in God's body, to these, these offices, these ideas, and even just in the world in general, to lead, care for, and protect, in our case, the church, but in the larger spectrum, the people. So why is this important to know? Well, simply put, I guess if, if I could summarize everything I'm saying this morning into a single sentence, it would be this. If you have an issue with authority, you are likely going to have an issue with Jesus. Because to truly know Jesus, at some point you have to see him as your Lord. And to say Jesus is my Lord is the beginning of recognizing that he is an authority, a gracious, loving, caring, amazing authority. Eight, eight amazing verses of how his authority is shown for us and his love for us. But nonetheless an authority. And it is not the other way around. 
And what I love about God and, and the reason we can have conversations like this and the reason you can have in, in a group of people like Jesus is speaking to, you can have all these opinions about Jesus. The, the reason this can happen is because there is a great grace that God shows the world and many of us a freedom. He says, listen, you can make your own mind up about me. You can decide whether or not I am the Lord of all. Some of you will, some of you won't. But the point that needs to kind of be wrestled with here is that it might be true for some people, but not true for others. At the end of the day, if Jesus, if Jesus truly is Lord, then while people are given the freedom to say that he's not Lord, or as Christians, we can love him to a certain degree, but not in all degrees, God does give us a gracious permissibility to function that way. At the end of the day, we need to know that at the end of time, that statement will be no less true than it is today. And that is what Paul is saying. At the end of time, when God makes all things right, everybody is going to recognize this. And so for those of us that have made the decision to, to follow Jesus as Lord, I guess my appeal for us today is that we would actually not just believe that, but we would live like that. And to say that is a problem because we do not live in a world that is going to be susceptibly, this is not going, they're not going to be susceptible to wanting to understand this. Um, in many ways, we might even be viewed as archaic for believing this. You know, the, the bottom line of this is we can say God is who he is. And although he gives us the freedom to say, no, you're not that, at the end of the day, God is who he is. My opinion of him doesn't change him. And so that's why an idea like what Thomas Jefferson puts out is a good one, but it's not necessarily an accurate one. At the end of the day, Jefferson, no matter where he ended up with his life, will have to figure out what the other, the other sides of Jesus that were disadvantaged, and aside, or that were neglected. On a side note, this is why I like John Adams a little more than Jefferson. He was a little more balanced in his understanding of God. Not perfect, but balanced, right? Um, you might, uh, if you listen to any Tim Keller, you've, you've probably heard this story. Um, he, he gave this in a talk addressing authority several years ago that was talking about two flies. And have you ever heard this barn analogy about two, two flies and how they understood authority? Not this would be good to kind of put in your head. This kind of uh, exemplifies what I'm saying here. In the story, there were two flies living in a barn, right? And they're having a conversation about a cow that they live on, essentially. And one fly says to the other, he says, what do you think of this cow, right? And the other fly says back to the first fly, he says, I don't like him because he ticks me off that whenever I land on his rear end, he swats me off with his tail, right? And the, the angry fly, who's like complaining about the, the dominance, if you will, of the cow in his life, he, he then asks the calm fly, he says, listen, man, I don't get it. Like, why do I got to move every time he tells me to move? Why is this? And the calm fly replies rather simply, says, listen, because he's the cow. And in this illustration, uh, he's just greater than both of us. His, his tail, if you will, is mightier than ours. And so there's an interesting kind of connection point we can make from that. Metaphorically speaking, in that, in that statement, if there really is a cow, right, then while the, the flies are allowed to have this discussion about what it means to be the cow and whether or not the cow has the right to swat them off the tail or whether or not, like, if you, the cow has places where it will permit you to be, whatever the conversation is, at the end of the day, the flies don't define the nature of the cow. The cow is the cow. And so the flies in that, in that story are really kind of called to orient their lives around it. Or, in the case of the angry fly, they just get angry. So here is, I think, the nut and bolt of what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 9, backing up to where we began. He's saying, listen, during this day and age, God makes a great space for the flies to question the cow. And I don't mean flies in an insulting way. God makes a great space for the people, past, present, and future of this world to complain about the cow, uh, to mock the cow, to reject the cow, to say crazy things about the cow, to live their lives in ways that deeply disappoint and hurt the cow. God says... I am a God of grace, and you can have this time. And at times, it might even seem like, like the flies rule the roost. That is certainly, I think, 
that seems to be the battle cry of today's culture. It seems like the idea of a, of a God named Jesus loving us and being Lord of us is probably a little more heinous than it was 10, 15 years ago. But I think the point of what these two passages teach us is that at some day, at some, some point in history, in future history, God will really, he's going to make sure that everybody knows that the cow, the cow is real. And this is why Paul says, listen, someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is the Lord. The love and the grace of God is too significant for God to just, in his justice, to let that go unchecked. But we get this amazing, these millennia of, uh, of, of years where God is just appealing to people in grace to trust and to believe in who he is. And so while Philippians 2, 1 through 8 shows us that God is a great God of love, Philippians 2, uh, 1, 9 shows us that how we understand authority, right, is going to shape how we understand Jesus. And taking this a step further, the way you approach Jesus will determine whether or not you can actually have a relationship with Jesus. If you come out of the gate saying, like, I'm in charge, you're never going to be able to know Jesus, know him well. And so in John, Jesus is telling the crowd, if you're not open-minded enough to at least explore my teachings and see where they take you, then even the ones about my authority, your heart is never going to be open enough to understand the love and the will of my Father. That's where he ends up. He doesn't say, you understand authority so you know who's in charge. That's not what he says. He says, to know the authority, to know that God is God, means that you will begin to know the will of my Father and connected to his will is the love and the grace and the joy and the peace and the hope and all these other things that Paul's already talked about. His authority breeds peace in our lives. Not abuse. He's saying it's okay. The nature of John shows it's okay to question me. The will of my father, the nature of God. However, the appeal that I think we need to make to ourselves this morning and to those in our lives who are far from God is we just have to do it in a way that's kind of fair. And we have to be willing at some point to answer our own questions or objections about who Jesus is and who he says we should be. And this will be very true next week when we talk a little bit about scripture. Because I think, I think perhaps... I would say this confidently, and I'll, I hope to maybe prove this to you next week, is that the greatest way people reject Jesus today in our culture, especially those in God, is by wanting to follow him but being just completely um, disconnected from who he is in the Scripture. They, and they begin to formulate this idea of who Jesus is entirely disconnected from who Jesus said he is, and it creates these faith systems that, that are different. And so with all this in mind, I guess I want to I ask you to think about this as we talk about uh, lordship today. I, I want you to ask yourself... As we move into response time, with God's help, are, are you submitting to Jesus' authority? When you think about your life, especially if you're in Jesus, when you think about him being Lord, how, how does that sound to you? Does that like cause you to, to twinge? Do you think like, yes, he's Lord and I wouldn't have it any other way because he's shown me time and time again that if I will believe this, he will show me love and grace in ways that, I, that I'm not even aware of. When, when that word Jesus is your Lord is mentioned, that statement, ask yourself with, with the truth of God's Holy Spirit working in your heart, what is the inclination of your heart? What is the response that you bring to God with that? Are you su submitting to Jesus? Are you trying to follow him? Or is there maybe a faith system where you really believe that Jesus needs to submit to you? And that's the way it gets worked out. As a result of his amazing lo love for you, um, you know, where are you at in how you serve your neighbor and how you serve your body here? And how you search to serve the people that God has put in your life outside of this place. When you think about the authority that God has given his people, think about this. There are titles that he's given us. We are sons and daughters of the living God, right? These are really powerful titles, designations, that are not meant to, to breed like exclusivity and, and, uh, and nastiness. These are titles given to us for the benefit of other people. You are a son or a daughter of God so that you can show the love and the grace 
to people in our world who are yet to be sons and daughters of God. The very amazing power of the titles God gives us are rooted in servant authority. To be a child of the living king means you have a responsibility to serve others in the name of the king and in a way that represents him well. And I'll say this, you, you might be surprised where God will take you when you approach him with a desire to know his will for your life. The bitterness of saying Jesus is Lord that might be on your tongue now, it might be a very different taste once you actually experience what the lordship of Jesus is. And that is what Paul says in Philippians. Think about the love connected to the lordship. Jesus and John, I am Lord, but walk with me a little bit to see what that looks like in your life. Give me some time to help you see it might be different than you understand it. And as we move into response time, ask yourself, when it comes to his lordship, his love, what is Jesus saying to you? And just as importantly, what will you do about it as you leave this place this week? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, um, I guess I want to just thank you for what I think is a consistent theme in your scripture. Wherever there are passages that tend to be a little more difficult to address, like the one we've looked at today, uh, here is a, a teaching on authority. But it is a teaching that has been connected to other attributes of who you are. We didn't just hear about who you are as the sovereign God who is Lord of all. We first heard about who you are as a sovereign God who uses authority to love us and to care for us and to serve us. There are other places in the Bible where this is true too. There are strong passages in the Gospel of John where, where you speak of judgment, but preceding statements of judgment or following statements of, ju of judgment are the appeal for your gracious hand. Your preference is not the judgment. It is the grace. And so I pray, Lord, as we think of lordship, no matter how we have entered this room today, that we would recognize that lordship is not a word we should see as negative or problematic. And if we do, we need to ask you in your infinite grace to begin moving our hearts towards an understanding of how you are Lord, how you have said you would be Lord, and how you have showed your people faithfully over decades and millennia how you live as our Lord. I pray, Lord, that, that the Jesus who is Lord would be the person who speaks most importantly into our lives about understanding and following, following you as such. And I pray now during this time that we would really wrestle with this idea, that we would create a space in our minds and in our hearts to have a couple of quiet minutes to contemplate the lordship of your son Jesus in our life. And may we live leave here more in love with your son because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, very quickly.